And we're live. Friends from around the world, welcome to the great debate. Not a debate where both sides work to defeat one another, rather a debate where both sides come together to find common ground. That's what makes this debate great, and it's great to have you here with us. Today, we have a very special episode featuring two distinguished guests from completely different backgrounds and ideological frameworks. Yet, they both agree that the status quo must be disrupted and that a one-state reality is the direction we must work towards. Our goal today is really to foster a greater understanding of this issue and to hopefully build a lasting alliance between these two differing ideological camps. Before we bring our guests on, a quick reminder that we'll be having an after party on our Discord, as always. Uh, Jesse, if you could toss a link in the chat, that'd be great. A big, a big shout out to our Patreon visionary members. We have Trivium Energy Pty Ltd. We have SOG Cannabis. We have Max Marine, and we have Geffen Posner, our newest visionary member. Welcome to the crew, Geffen. Um, if you'd like to become a patron, you can find a link in the description. There, you'll also find other ways to support us. And it's really our patrons and other supporters that help us make these conversations possible. So, you know, a big thank you to you all. If you're new. Subscribe. We're right about to hit 5,000 subscribers, and maybe during this episode we could do so with your help, so hit that subscribe button. I'm reminding everybody we're going to keep the chat respectful. We're all about respectful conversation. We're not going to tolerate hate, so consider this your, your warning. Without further ado, a great pleasure to bring on Peter Beinart and Rabbi Yehuda Cohen. To my top right, Peter Beinart, a professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York. He's also a contributing, contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, a CNN political commentator, editor-at-large of current, uh, Jewish Currents, and non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. He writes the Beinart Network newsletter on Substack.com, and you can find links to his social media and his Substack in the description. And to my top left... Rabbi Yehuda Cohen is a West Bank Jewish organizer and educator. As a leader in the vision movement, he works to empower students to become thought leaders and active participants in the current chapter of Jewish history. As a facilitator with Semitic Action, he organizes grassroots dialogue sessions for Palestinians and Israelis seeking to transcend competing one-sided narratives in favor of a more scientific analysis of the factors forcing both people into conflict. Peter, Yehuda, it's great to have you both here with us. Um, we're going to start, uh, Yehuda, I'm going to, I'm going to start, uh, with you. So you've really been fighting against the two state solution for most of your adult life. Um, now that position, this position has really seemed to gain traction, uh, in recent years, where do you see the process going from here? And also a little bit about why you view a one state solution as important. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'd just like to express to Peter how much I, how much respect I have for you. Uh, you're somebody who is seen as very much uh, invested in the two-state paradigm, and I think your ability to move past it uh, in the way that you did really shows a lot of courage, intellectual honesty. Uh, a lot of people have trouble, you know, even when reality hits them in the face, being able to adjust and, and switch their positions up um, on all sides of the spectrum. So really, I, I have a lot of respect for that, and it's really an honor for me to be here with you. I'm sure we'll agree uh, on a lot of things tonight, but uh, I'm really honored to be here with you. And I just wanted to let you know how much respect I have for, for what you're doing and, uh, and your journey. Thank you. Uh, it's true, like it's said, um, 
I've spent much of my adult life fighting a two-state solution. Since I made Aliyah almost 20 years ago, I've been part of a sector of Israeli society that's, I would say, deeply uh, living the aspirations of the Jewish people and is, of course, therefore very much committed to the land of Israel, uh, especially the lands that we took in 1967. And uh, the lands we've been struggling to come back to for 2,000 years. I mean, these are the places that have been central to our narrative, Shiloh and Hebron and Betel, etc. And therefore, so long as the two-state paradigm was presented to us as the only paradigm for achieving peace with the Palestinians, we, by default, had no choice but to be anti-peace. Uh, I don't think that my sector... Um, I really don't think that my sector has more issues with Palestinians, whether it be their identity, recognizing their story, understanding uh, the extent to which we're responsible for their suffering, any more than any other sector in Israeli society. I don't think that's limited to Jews who live in the West Bank. I think that's really across you know, the state of Israel. There's a, a willful blindness to what Palestinians are experiencing, um, their identity, their narrative. Uh, the truth is, I think it's also true in reverse. I think we're right now stuck in a situation where we're both very much afraid to engage the stories of the other. Uh, but now that we're able to move past the notion of partitioning this country in half, I think it's clear that the contradictions between my sector of, is of Israeli society and the Palestinians is much less antagonistic than the contradictions between what we can call mainstream Israeli society and the Palestinians. I actually think that in a one-state reality, Jews like me might have an easier time getting along with Palestinians than Jews in, you know, the Merkaz, for example. But um, that being said, I think it's also important to point out that, you know, right now, no solution can work. Not a two-state solution, not a one-state solution, certainly not the status quo. And that's because the relationship dynamics are a problem. You know, one of my friends and, and colleagues in Bethlehem, Sami Awad, likes to compare this to a, a picture and a frame. You know, the painting is our relationship and the frame are the solutions everybody tries to put onto our relationship. And I really uh, think that at this point, we need to be focusing a lot more on fixing the picture, on fixing the painting. Uh, and then, as Sammy says, you know, many more frames will become available. Instead of trying to start with the frame, trying to start with the solution, saying this is what has to be. Uh, but... That being said, I think that it's important to also talk about what we want. And this is actually, you know, very much an internal Jewish conversation. We don't have any Palestinians joining us today, you know, on the call. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Peter has spoken to many Palestinians. I've spoken to many, many Palestinians, um, heard a lot of different perspectives. But I think that it's important even sometimes before we engage them and also before they engage us, for us to both be very clear about what we want. So the best I think we can do, in addition to fixing those relationship dynamics right now, is to create the conditions for the solutions we want to see. And for me, that's very much a single state between the river and the sea that allows both Jews and Palestinians to realize our deepest aspirations, to be able to feel like winners in the respective um, stories we're living in, in our respective narratives. And when I talk about narratives, what I really mean is a collection of facts that are really selectively chosen and contextualized within an ideological worldview. I think, you know, Jews and Palestinians have experienced two completely different stories over the last hundred years. We're living in two completely different conflicts. We understand the conflicts are very different. I think we're both telling the truth when it comes to our own identities, but I think we're both, um, we're both 
not understanding, as I said before, the identity of the other. So we have a tendency on both sides to really superimpose uh, identities, ideologies, and motivations on the other that often have very little to do with how the other experiences himself. And that's kind of led us to a situation where we're really fighting our fantasy antagonists of the other instead of who the other actually is. Uh, so it's not even productive as a method of struggle if the goal is to win at the other's expense. Uh, so really, we have every um, we have every incentive, I think, both Israelis and Palestinians, to really engage the identities, the stories, the, the grievances and the aspirations of the other in a very, very real way as the other is experiencing those things uh, and unpack them. Because if we're, if, if we're interested, or at least I'm interested in creating a solution here that could be experienced as victory for both peoples in our respective movies, then that really requires us to unpack the grievances and aspirations of both sides. Uh, and maybe in this debate, we'll at least be able to talk about the Jewish side, you know, talk about the aspirations of the Jewish side and what the people of Israel need in order to feel like winners in the story we're living in and how to get to that, you know, how to get from where we are right now to a place where Israelis are much more willing to open ourselves up to the Palestinian story, to their narrative, to their grievances, and to recognize what we've contributed to this conflict uh, instead of just trying to be the victim. Thank you so much, Yehuda. So, Peter, you know, I, you, as Yehuda has mentioned, have moved from a two-state solution to now a, a different paradigm. So I'd like to know a little bit about what caused that shift. And also take this time to feel free to build on anything Yehuda said or push back on areas you, you may disagree. Sure. Thank you. Um, I mean, I suppose that I came to support the two-state solution out of a desire to reconcile two competing impulses, uh, you know, uh, both of which I actually think of as, as a stem from, um, from Judaism. The first is the recognition that, that uh, all people are created in the image of God. The Torah doesn't start with Jews. It starts with human beings. Um, and, and, and that in, that in today's world, we understand that what that means. I think one modern way of interpreting that is that all people have the right to be citizens of the state in which they live. That if you are not a citizen, at least a citizen of the, of the state in which you live, that's the baseline. Then terrible things will happen because the state is not responsive to you. So that was one moral impulse. And, and perhaps like, uh, Rabbi Cohen, I, I, I was very influenced in that by my experience with Palestinians, you know, spending time with Palestinians and seeing what life looked like day in and day out for people who lived under the control of a state that was not responsive to them. On the other hand, I also see the Jewish people as a kind of extended family. I mean, in, in Genesis, we are, there's a family in Genesis that in, in, in Exodus, in Shemot becomes an, a people, a nation, but, but still, I think with a metaphor of extended family, B'nai Yisrael. And so I was looking to try to reconcile these two impulses, the, the kind of moral obligation um, to Palestinians who have the right to be citizens of the country in which they live, and the notion of Jews as an extended family wanting uh, self-determination. Um, and so the two-state solution seemed to offer some way of reconciling those things, especially because the Palestinian national movement had, after many, many decades, starting in the 70s and moving into the 1980s, essentially embraced the idea of two states. I should say that I did not, in my vision of two states, did not, I did not 
welcome or ne- or or see it as necessary that that the Jewish settlers would ne- necessarily need to leave the West Bank. It seemed to me entirely plausible that pal- that the Jewish settlers should be able to live as Palestinian citizens in a Palestinian state uh, in the West Bank. Um, but I think that I moved away from that. Uh, partly simply because of a, of a feeling that um, it was no longer a viable solution, given how deeply entrenched Israeli control was over the West Bank. And secondly, that um, uh, that this, the two-state solution, at least as, as genuinely, as, as traditionally understood, didn't reconcile with, didn't, didn't acknowledge certain deeper issues that really had to be put front and center in the conversation. And, and one of those, for instance, I would say, would be the right of Palestinian refugees. Um, that I, I think it's not morally tenable for, uh, and particularly for us as a people, so invested in the notion of, of remembering our history and returning to places that we are from, to tell Palestinians that they can, they, that, that this, that we would, it, we, that they would have to accept a two-state solution in which they had no chance to return to the places that they were from or that their parents were from. So I think it was those two things that led me to start thinking beyond uh, the two-state solution. Thank you, Peter. Um, Yehuda, do you do you have a follow-up, or you want me to? Uh... No, I, I go ahead. Uh, what's on your mind, Adar? So I don't have any real disagreement. Well, with well no, yeah, no, I, I know. So, I mean, so 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 far so good. I mean, there's there's pretty much no area of contention. There there there's it's clear that that how you reached the one-state solution definitely comes from a, a slightly different place, but there definitely. Where, where you're both the same is that there's a humanist value there and the want to allow the people, the inhabitants of the land to have access to the, the entire piece of land. Um, I have a feeling that there might be a, a difference in, in what this land looks like. So I, I guess this is going to be a follow-up for, for Peter because Yehuda, I think you've made it clear that you want the entire land to be called Israel, right? Is, it, um, like, is that something... Right. I, definitely, I need to experience, I think, that what, what I understand our people to have been wanting for thousands of years since we became refugees. I think that Peter's uh, analogy is correct. The comparison between our situation or our previous situation and the Palestinian situation, it, it's, you know, whenever I hear people uh, on the Jewish side uh, dismiss the Palestinian refugee issue or talk about how, you know, the UN doesn't, doesn't uh, like uh, allow any other refugee population to have hereditary refugee status. And how could it be that Palestinians get the special treatment? You know, it's always struck me as a little bit strange because that was our story. You know, we were a refugee population who passed that down from generation to generation, you know, saying at every Pesach Seder, at every wedding, at every Brit Milah, you know, all the time we are returning to Jerusalem. That, so I need, in order to feel like a winner in the story I'm living in, I need to experience Jewish self-determination in the entire land of Israel between the river and the sea. And now that, that doesn't mean that uh, Palestinians need to call it Israel. Meaning I don't have a problem with people calling it other things. You know, if I'm at uh, in Canada going through customs and somebody sees my Israeli passport and they say, ah, you're Palestinian. Okay, nod, smile, move on. It doesn't bother me as long as I'm experiencing Jewish self-determination between the river and the sea. Looks like we lost Peter. Um, wow. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully he'll be, he'll be back soon enough. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, we, we I, I guess we'll just, uh, you know, until he gets back. Hold on, let me just uh, email him real quick. Oh, he's back. Never mind. I don't know what happened. I apologize. Something all, all good. Um, um, technical I'm, difficulties. I'm sorry. The last thing I heard was going through an airport. Uh, uh, um, no, I, forgive I'm me. Saying it's less important to me. Look, for, for me, when I think about Jewish state, I think one of the problems we have is that until now, we haven't really defined, you know, some people like to talk about the Zionist trilemma. There is, you know, a Jewish state, democracy, and the land of Israel. And the Zionist logic was that we can have two out of three. And I think that comes from not being creative enough in our political thinking or even defining what Jewish state means or what democracy even means. Um, you know, for me, democracy means that uh, people are empowered to influence the structures they live under, right? Nobody should be living under a regime that they have no uh, influence over how that, you know, how, how that plays out in their lives. Uh, and Jewish state, I think until now, we've been defining Jewish state as really a European-style nation-state with Jewish decorations. And those Jewish decorations have been too Jewish for Palestinians and not Jewish enough for certain sectors of Israeli society that seem to be the fastest-growing sectors of Israeli society. So I think if we're looking towards a one state that we can both experience as the realization of what we're looking for, what we're looking to experience in this land, I think the Jewish character of the state should become a lot softer than it is right now, but at the same time, a lot deeper. So the average Haredi child might see the Jewishness of the structures, the policies, the institutions, uh, in a way that's, that a Palestinian or an African asylum seeker or even a Jew with less Jewish education might not even notice to be Jewish. He might think of it as, you know, just a great policy. And I think that what you know, in my experience working with Palestinians, what seems to be the consensus, at least with the younger generation, is that people are looking for a democratic single state between the river and the sea that is completely equal and completely inclusive. And what I would say as a Jew who is pretty actively living my people's story, I need to see the, you know, Jewish self-determination in the entire land but for me, that's not, it's not a question about rights. It's really a question about responsibilities. Meaning, for example, if I think that this should be a one-state solution and that it, I should experience it as Jewish self-determination, then that means we need to be taking responsibility. We need to be taking responsibility for Palestinian healthcare, for Palestinian education, for Palestinian uh, civil servant salaries. Um, and these are all things that, you know, maybe Israel, like for civil servant salaries, by the way, might be something... Israel could even do unilaterally if we decide we're moving towards a one-state solution. You know, I don't think too many Palestinians would object to getting a second check in their mailbox every month, you know, one for the Palestinian Authority and one from the Israeli government that should, of course, be at the same level of what Israeli citizens in that same position are making. And that might be, you know, a good step towards changing the picture again, not the solution, not the framework, not the frame around the picture, but the picture itself changing the way we experience Palestinians and changing the way Palestinians experience us. And I think that really right now, in order to get to wherever we're going, we need to be focused on changing those relationship dynamics and how we're experiencing the other. Because as long as we experience each other as the antagonist, as the enemy, as, as the bad guy in our story for the last century, then we're not going to be able to build trust and move forward towards any kind of solution. Yeah, so... so 
you know, Peter, it, it really seems like one of the greatest challenges with one state is how do we how do we actually deal with the national aspirations of of two people? Because the the, the national aspirations of the Israelis or the Palestinians are not going anywhere. Um, so it's like on one hand, we we could acknowledge that the two state solution is dead. But how do we really ha- have you thought about this at all? How do we create two two national realities within one one state? Have you given that any thought? I have given it a bit of thought. I mean, this place, Israel, Palestine, Palestine, Israel, whatever you wanted to call it, would not be the only binational state in the world. Um, there are other states that have reckoned, reckoned with this. Um, and it seems to me, um, at the level of, um, society, right? Of course, you have two, two peoples, two communities, um, uh, uh, each of which is diverse in its own way, kind of living out its, its cultural identity at the level of, of state, um, of government. I think that you need to have, uh, mechanisms for communal autonomy. Obviously, Palestinian children may want to go to be many, many Palestinian parents will want their children to be educated in Arabic. Many Jewish parents will want their children to be educated in Hebrew. Uh, and within that, there will be diverse streams as there are today. I think what the most, I think the more effective binational states are often created with what's called a kind of consociational regime, which is to say, that you mean you you create a situation in which uh, a, a bare majority cannot make the most profound decisions, but you need buy-in from both communities. So you first start with a strong something like a strong bill of rights of individual rights, but you also, if again, if you look at Belgium, for instance, you see that basically for the most important decisions, there has to be buy-in from both uh, both Flemish and Walloon, so that one community can't kind of override the concerns of the other. So I think those would be the kind of fundamental building blocks. Um, uh, and I think what um, you know what would be most uh, what I think we know from binational I, what we know from binational states which Israel in a way already is, right? Because 50% of the people between the river and the sea are Palestinian. It's just that most of them can't vote for the government that controls their lives. Is the binational states are more stable and more peaceful when everyone is represented in government than when one group is locked out. And I, what I would hope is that what you would see in a binational Israel-Palestine would be the emergence of politics, right? I mean, democratic politics, meaning all kinds of weird formations, right? I mean, we always we already see even the very, very beginnings of, of what this could look like with this Israeli elections, right? That there are Palestinians and Jews who agree on certain there are cultural divides that cut through both Palestinian and Jewish society, right? There are divides about neoliberalism versus a more socialist economic framework that might cut through both societies. Maybe some Palestinian business owners join up with some Israeli business owners. Maybe some Palestinian, some Palestinian social conservatives join up with some Jewish social conservatives and you get cross-cutting cleavages. And this allows people to get to know one another. But also I think this is a stabilizing force. Political systems that have one overarching cleavage are in more, are more imperiled than ones in which people's multiple identities play out politically in various different ways. So they see different forms of connection with different groups. Thank you. Yehuda, um, so please share if there's, there's something there you disagree with, but you know, I have another question for you. It's, how do we convince Israelis of this? This seems like the kind of deal that it seems most Palestinians would be on board with. But we, you know, we know very well that the demographic uh, fear that many Israelis have, and and that's kind of why the one-state solution doesn't have more national support uh, at this time. So, you know, really, what do you say to Israelis that are like, no way, I'm not on board with that? 
Well, first of all, I think um, the fastest growing de demographic between the river and the sea is Haredi. And I think second place is probably a tie between Jews like me and Palestinians. So we're either way looking at a very different country in 20 years. Uh, but in terms of, you know, the concern of demography, I think that, you know, for me, the ideal would be a participatory democracy, which I think is, first of all, more Jewish. That would be an example of a deep, you know, expression of Jewish identity. You know, historically, we did have uh, models of government that were very similar to what we today call participatory democracy excuse me, participatory democracy. Um, right now, I think the representative democracy that's popular in most of the Western world and seems to be attempted in Israel to a certain extent doesn't really work. It doesn't really make people feel represented. Um, you know, we are heading into our fourth election in two years. Um, I'm not really sure why the threshold is as high as it is, meaning that seems to lock out a lot of voices as well and force a lot of weird combinations that might not otherwise, you know, be formed. Uh, but I think that if you have a participatory model where you have people kind of getting together in their communities and opting in to discuss everything and decide everything, you know, fra at the local level, but, you know, progressively moving towards the national uh, and with the ability, of course, to recall representatives, I think you can have a situation where the country is fully democratic and fully inclusive, yet there's no, you know, quote unquote, demographic danger. Thank you. What what can we what can we what can we do to start progressing this reality? So Yehuda, you you gave a little pitch for what you think can help convince uh, Israelis. Peter, what, what do you think needs to be done on both the Israeli and Palestinian side to really help help us you know get to where we need to go to to disrupt the status quo and and create a reality where this the land is open um, and equal to all of, all of its inhabitants. Well, look, I'm an American. I'm not an Israeli. So I, I, I don't, you know, I have a better firsthand understanding, I think, of, of the debate as it plays out here than it does there. Um, I would say that certainly here um, in the Jewish community in the United States, I think the, I would say the single greatest problem we have is that um, there is not very much exposure to Palestinians um, uh, um, uh, in, among American Jews. So, um that, you know, that it's kind of rare that your average synagogue or Jewish community center or Jewish school is inviting Palestinian speakers. It's still, I think, not the norm for when American Jews go to Israel, that they actually have a meaningful experience with Palestinians. And I think that um, although I don't think people think about it that way, to be constantly talking about people, but not talking to them and not listening to them is a recipe for dehumanization. And so what happens is we have a deeply dehumanized discourse in which Palestinians are a kind of a, a dangerous, perhaps pathological kind of faceless mass. And also in which people are really not forced to confront the just the raw brutality of what it means to control the lives of millions of people who are powerless vis-a-vis -vis the state that controls them. And this has nothing to do with the nature of Jewish soldiers or, or, or anything like that. It's simply the, the fundamental reality that if people are powerless vis-a-vis -vis the state in any place in the world, that that state is going to do terrible things to them. And I think that, um, so 
if we simply got to the, and I think unfortunately we have an American Jewish establishment that often actually works to make it very difficult for Palestinians to actually even share their lived experiences in public discourse. I think if we could break through that, you know, one of the lines I love is from, you know, Pirkei Avot, it says, who is wise, the one who learns from all people. If we could simply keep that as our framework um, uh, and, and, stop, and, and, and stop talking about Palestinians without listening to Palestinians, I think that itself would have, maybe this is naive, a, a fairly revolutionary impact on the nature of art of discourse. And I think it would lead to a change in American policy in which we could ask ourselves questions about whether it makes sense for us to be, for the United States to be spending to be giving Israel $3 billion a year, essentially unconditionally, um, when uh, uh, um, uh, in a situation where that money is being used to deny people basic rights. Um, uh, and, and I think, so that would be the, the thing that I would hope we could move towards. Thank you. Yehuda, anything you well, want to Well, we should build? probably wean ourselves off of America. Yeah, no, I, I think, no, I think that what Peter's saying about the American Jewish establishment is correct. I think I've had a, I've have personal experience, you know, trying to show up to Jewish high schools with Palestinian friends, you know, to speak to the students and, you know, being canceled last minute because some parent complains or, you know, some kid is, you know, basically, let's be honest, in most Jewish circles, especially pro-Israel circles, the Palestinian story is just perceived as propaganda. Like it's not real. It's just a weapon to destroy us. That's how we see it. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, like the truth is, we we're coming to this. The Jewish people are coming to this conversation with a lot of trauma and a lot of uh, unresolved trauma that I think we need to heal from before we can, you know, show up to really engage the Palestinian story. That's part of the problem, also. You know, when most when most peoples achieve their uh, liberation, like we did from the British in 1948, they're supposed to engage in what we can call a post-colonial conversation, where they really, you know, address what happened to them. Now, we weren't like, you know, other peoples who were colonized, you know, in their lands and ultimately achieved their freedom. We were actually taken out of our land. And I'd say especially Ashkenazim, but not only Ashkenazim, you know, we experienced a really uh, traumatic brutality for many, 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 many centuries that impacted us and still impacts us. And, you know, we came back to our land and we found ourselves in conflict with these other people. And we're, you know, it's hard, you know, it's hard for us to, now that we have power again for the first time in 2000 years, it's hard for us to even recognize that we have power and that we're not just the victim all the time. And I think that, you know, Palestinians are very much um, victims of our identity crisis and our unwillingness to deal with our own trauma and our unwillingness to define like who we are and what we want. Like just for the last 54 years, Palestinians in the West Bank have been living under us and we haven't been clear about what we're going to do. On the one hand, you know, these are the lands we've been dreaming about coming back to for 2000 years. On the other hand, the Americans and the Europeans don't want us here. On the other hand, we need these mountains to defend our densest population centers. On the other hand, there are all these non-Jews here. What are we going to do with them? Are we going to make them citizens? Are we going to not make them citizens? For So for over half a century, we've done nothing and we've done everything. And we've pretended to do some things, but really secretly done something else. And I think that's unfair. It's unfair to us and it's unfair to them. I think we need to uh, make it very, very clear that we're not going anywhere and that we need to create a uh, some kind of formation between the river and the sea that can allow us both to fully express our aspirations in a way that harmonizes. And of course, you know, we have to move forward in such a way where we're building trust. I think the power dynamics 
definitely favor Israel right now. Therefore, it's our responsibility to make the first moves towards building trust. Uh, but it also gives us more power in the way the process begins initially. Uh, and ultimately, we, of course, need to get to the point where, you know, we're, we're not just, you know, trying to look to see how this person is going to use this new situation as a weapon against us, but rather actually get to the point where we care about what's important to one another. You know, I think that most people would envision a one-state solution or a two-state solution or any solution 20, 30, 40 years down the road. They're still thinking of two peoples who hate each other and want to destroy each other. And that's why I think ultimately it's really, really important for us to, first of all, be willing. I, I think the greatest barrier to actual reconciliation is the unwillingness for us to be able to engage the other, to really be able to honestly hear the story of what the other is experiencing, share our story and let them hear us, and try to create a situation where we're no longer antagonists in each other's, in each other's stories, but actually co-protagonists together in the same story. And I've found, I've been working you know, in this type of work for roughly 11 years now. And honestly, it's easy. Like I'm, most of the work that we do is between Jews living in the West Bank, in some of the most radical community, uh, communities, Havron, Yitzhar, Havad Gilad, what we consider to be the extremists on our side, with their Palestinian neighbors. And I find that these conversations and these dialogue sessions you know, are able to progress in a way I don't think dialogue sessions with Israelis from Tel Aviv or Haifa would be able to progress. You know, and also it's helpful that people live close to each other and are able to continue their relationships, etc. But I think the focus really needs to be with the relationship dynamics on the ground, especially since neither I, nor Peter, nor Adar are actually in a position to make policy at this moment. Yehuda, we lost you at the very, your very last sentence. I didn't hear. Are we Peter, were you able to hear him? Oh, uh, yeah, I think no, said, I, I just I, said I, that I because. Oh, good. Just your last sentence you cut out. I was just saying that because. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah I can hear you. Yeah, okay. I, I was just saying that because. Okay, but because none of us are in a position to really make policy at this point, I think the focus needs to be on what we can do. To think about what we can do to advance things in the grassroots level. Um, for Peter, that might be in the American Jewish community. Um, and for me, that's in Jewish communities in the West Bank. Uh, and But I think the idea is really to be able to do what it is uh, that we can do in order to, look, I, I would say the other barriers, you know, to moving forward with a two-state solution, which I think we all agree is over anyway. And, um, and, and I would say something else. I'd be curious to hear what Peter thinks of this. Um, I, I find that another major barrier to being able to move forward here is a combination of Israel's ruling class wanting to be part of the West and not the Middle East with uh, an, an insistence by many Palestinians and a lot of the region perceiving Israel as part of the West and not the Middle East, meaning this insistence on seeing Israel as this colonial outpost as opposed to an organic part of the region. Now, I I know that we haven't always behaved like an organic part of the region, but I think that's, you know, part of how we advance Jewish liberation, you know, from here. You know, for me, that's very much central to this conversation. What does Jewish liberation mean in a post-Zionist world? Meaning Zionism was successful. We came back to our land. We achieved self-determination. We revived our language. We came back to Jerusalem. But what comes next? And I think that, you know, that conversation, obviously, 
you know, for me, one of the goals I've identified as what comes after Zionism, what, what's, what are the goals of the Jewish liberation movement that comes after Zionism, is cleaning up Zionism's mess while protecting its positive achievements. So actually, and, and actually making peace with the Palestinians in a real way. Um, but the question is, like, are we able to approach that from the position of Jewish liberation or are we uh, going? And I think that's really the answer to the question. How do you convince? I saw somebody ask in the chat, how do you get Israelis on board with, with being able to move forward? Um, it's not just about demography. It's about, you know, Israelis fearing that any move towards reconciliation with the Palestinians is somehow going to be a retreat from what we've achieved, somehow going to be a retreat from Jewish liberation up till now. So I think that we need to make sure we frame our reconciliation with Palestinians in such a way that it's an advancement of Jewish liberation and not a retreat from it. Thank you. You have thoughts on that, Peter? Um, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think, um, um, first of all, I think that, you know, if, if on the point about Israel being accepted as part of the Middle East. Um, I think, you know, one, I think there, there's some th questions that one could ask about how Israel as a society has evolved, ha you know, has thought about that question. So first, you know, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, someone in the Middle East might say, well, most of the people in this region speak Arabic, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So how many of you have learned Arabic, <laughs> you know, um, uh, since you want to you know, since you see, want to see yourself as part of this region, for instance, right? Um, I think also, uh, you know, it's not, is, Israeli, the way Israeli identity has, emer has, has developed is that the term Arab and Jew have been seen as mutually contradictory. So, the, the, you know, even for those many Jewish populations, you know, my grandmother was born in Alexandria, Egypt, who, who came from Arabic-speaking countries, I think especially in the early days of Israel, um, that, to, to, that, that one's Arabness was considered to be uh, a marker of being lower class and, and a marker of perhaps not even being entirely part of the Zionist project. And so that, that what happened was that the populations that could have been more of a bridge, I think in some ways were, were encouraged to excise the Arabness inside of themselves. Um, uh, and so that I think is also meant that a population that, that could have been more of a bridge is actually, I think in order to assimilate into an Ashkenazi dominated Israel was actually uh, forced to kind of close that down in many ways. Um, I, I think that um, I, I, I very much- well, Hold on, clarification. I, I sure. would say that Jews coming from European countries were also encouraged to to discard, you know, their European names and the European aspects themselves. There's an idea, there's a value of Hebraizing everybody, that everybody's yes. supposed to melt into this new Hebrew identity. Right, right. But I don't think that the, if you look at the status of Yiddish compared to the status of Arabic, for instance, yes, there was a dismissal of Yiddish. It was it was old world. Mm -hmm. Shtetl, it was it was non non actualized, but there wasn't the there wasn't the same you know the impact of speaking Yiddish on the street if you are a Jew from Ukraine or the impact of speaking Arabic on the street if you are a Jew from from Morocco I think was different because being an speaking Arabic identified you with the enemy, which was different than speaking right. Yiddish. Um, I, the other mm -hmm. thing point is I, I mean I agree with everything that you know Rabbi Hakoin said about um, about the about persuasion and the need to show Jews that that. That our story can be can be can actually that that can, that we are as he said winners um, in a in a, in one equal just state. But I also think there the the harsh reality is that um, 
you know, Frederick Douglass, you know, famously said that power concedes nothing without a demand, which is to say, while a moral appeal and an appeal to, to enlighten self-interest is crucial, I also think that if we look at other movements of people who do not have basic rights and acquired them, those people also had to make a moral demand, a, a, a nonviolent moral demand. And so I think that we need to think about ways of supporting Palestinians and being part of Palestinian movements that in a, with, that with a vision of love and equality and justice say, we are going to challenge the status quo, uh, even in some ways that may make your life more difficult. Not that endanger you, but that make that, but that make that show that the status quo is not acceptable. Um, uh, you know, if that's if that's nonviolent, various forms of nonviolent protest. Uh, and I think what instead we tend to see happening again, certainly in the United States, is that in many ways um, uh, that that um, we make that very very difficult. Um, because again, I think that um, uh, there have to be moral movements that challenge unjust status quos and that make a demand in the, you know, is what King called the fierce urgency of now, even as they speak with an ethic of love. Um, so right. so I, the question, the question is, what is the end that is going to Right. Yeah. It seems to me that the, the, the demand is for equality, you know, the demand is to say that we are that we are equal and that we deserve we deserve equal rights. Now, obviously, that doesn't. There's a lot to unpack there, right? But I think that 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 basic call, um, it seems to me, is 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 the is the has has enormous currency around the world, and and we we see again and again the way in which things that seem impossible um, can be made possible by, by movements that can find a language of freedom and equality, um, and, uh, that, uh, and, and speak to the, speak to the people who are holding them, uh, without, you know, who are oppressing them and speak to and speak to the world. I'd like to, um, take a few audience questions. This session is going to be a little bit, uh, shorter than, than our other sessions. Um, Peter, you know, you, you graced us with your presence. You told us ahead of time that you are short on time. But um, you've you've even given us more, so thank you. Um, Maybe we can just do a couple more if you don't mind. I'm enjoying I'm enjoying this a lot. Yeah, yeah, for 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 sure. So we'll take some questions, and you know, we we'd love to have you back for future sessions if if you're really enjoying this. Um, you know, you, you mentioned about how we need to, you know, improve dialogue um, and understanding even with Amer between American Jews and Palestinians. I mean, that's really what this channel is all about. It's all about conversations and engaging in the reconciliation process. So it, it seems like we're all very much aligned in that, in that regard. Um, I'm, I'm going to, so crew start asking questions now. I, I want to just, you know, mention something. This conversation has been, you know, fascinating for, for many reasons, but one being that, you know, we have Yehuda, a Jew living in the West bank and Peter, a Jew living in New York. And on the outside, you know, it, it, it seems like you two would be vastly different. Um, I know, Peter, from what I understand, you do identify as Zionist, but many of the, you know, staunch Zionists consider you to be an anti-Zionist for one reason or another. That's, that, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think that's true. I consider myself a cultural Zionist. Yeah. Right. And, and Yehuda, you know, to many is considered like a, a right wing extremist, you know, just the, the perception of a Jew living in the West Bank. That's That's how they... They seem, and then, so 
we bring you together for this conversation and it sounds like there's like a, a 90% alignment, which, which just shows that like an outside perception is not always how people are. And, and even despite our disagreements, we could come together for, for, um, for, you know, productive conversations such as this. Um, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, oh, we got a bunch of questions. So, you know, Peter, you're going to have to cut it whenever you, whenever you, uh, if you, you feel we've gone overboard, but, um, Okay. I just, I, I need to read them. So we're not doing anything. Okay. So first of all, someone wants an elaboration of what it means to be a cultural Zionist. Sure. So, so I think of the tradition of cultural Zionism going back to Achad Ha'am um, as someone who believed that, um, that recreating a, a, a vibrant Jewish society um, in, in the land of Israel, which could radiate throughout the Jewish world, was incredibly important by doing things like, you know, reviving Hebrew as a, as a living language. That was, that was Achad Ha'am's vision, but he didn't believe that it needed to require, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't for him require a state that privileged Jews over others. He thought it could exist perhaps even in the Ottoman Empire. And then you have other people like the, like the, like people in, in, in Brit Shalom, you know, uh, um, uh, Ernst Simon, Martin Buber, um, uh, Han Henrietta Schultz, Judah Magnus in the mid, you know, in the kind of thirties and forties, basically also seeing themselves as cultural Zionists, but believer, but supporting a binational state. So that's what I mean by cultural Zionism. Great. Thank you. Um, next we have, so I guess this is really a, a question to, to both, to both of you. Um, what would you say to, cause it's important to understand that most Israelis are still very uncomfortable with a one state solution. Okay. We, we do have two Jews here who are very cool with it. And we could even consider myself a third, although I'm looking towards the Federation probably a bit more so, which is a form of one state. Um, but most Jews are still very uncomfortable. So we do have some pushback in the comments. So one is asking, um, and thank you, Nicholas. What, what would you say to a two-state solution that had many elements of a one-state solution, i.e. freedom of movement and free trade? So it, is that an acceptable solution? Um, I guess that would be more like a, a, conf, a, a confederation, right? Kind of like the European Union of sorts. So open borders, um, you could live there or there, but it would be two separate states. Is there any objection to a reality like that? You're sure. asking. Uh, this is for 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 both of you. Oh. I vote yes. Objection. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a feeling. I'm not Peter, willing you, to you, accept you, any partition of this. And in fact, I think that um, I, it's also very important to me that we return to Gaza, and I think that could give us an opportunity to experiment uh, with resolving refugee issues. You know, most of the Palestinian, obviously, you know, most people know that Gaza is experiencing a um, humanitarian crisis just in terms of the densely populated population there. Uh, I think, and most of the population there are Palestinians who fled from Haifa and Akko and Yafo and Beersheva and other places in 1948. Um, it's very important to me, and it has been for 15 years, almost 16 years, that we return and rebuild Gush Katif. Uh, so I think that uh, we should go back into Gaza. We should rebuild Gush Katif. But what we should do uh, with Palestinians there is really obviously offer everybody citizenship and equality, but also offer any Palestinian who wants to move back to where their family came from in 1948, 
a brand new luxury apartment on us in that place. Uh, meaning that's a means of wealth redistribution. That's a means of offering uh, opportunities for people to go back to where they say they want to go back to. Obviously, it would alleviate the um, you know the humanitarian crisis you know due to overpopulation in Gaza, and it would allow us to feel like we've come back and we've undone the injustice that was inflicted on us in 2005. Uh, so, I, and I think that if that's successful, meaning if that's successful as a way to handle refugee issues, it would give us the opportunity to have that conversation more broadly with Palestinian refugees who are not between the river and the sea right now. Great. Um, I, I do want to make one clarification because I see, Yehuda, some of some people are, are coming out in support for you. They, they think that I called you a right winger, but they're saying that you're not. You're Okay. I, I, I just well, want to make I, it clear. I, I just to, want to make it clear. There's a perception that living in the West Bank would make you a right winger. So I hope you don't feel like that was a a, a, a mischaracterization. Yeah. So not only I, I live in the West Bank, I consider myself to be a student of Rav Kook. I'm part of the sector of Israeli society that is seen as the national religious sector, which is, first of all, I think there's a, there's a big problem with trying to apply Western political framings on the state of Israel. I think it doesn't work. I think it's very problematic when you try to understand Israeli society and Israeli politics through a Western lens. Uh, we, we need to figure out new language to describe the different ideological and political camps in our country. This is the only country I know of where the term left wing is actually synonymous with the westernized ruling class. You know, when you talk to the average person, uh, I am somebody who would probably be considered very left wing anywhere else in the world. But the fact that I live in Judea and I'm like living Jewish aspirations, mamash, like I'm really like living the story of Am Yisrael, living the story of my people, that puts me on the right of the Israeli map somehow. I'm going to address... Peter, did you want to say something? No, no, no go ahead. Okay, I'm going to address a, a repeat comment by Sabatoni. So, Peter, you could answer it too, but I'm, I'm going to, I'll give it a go first. He goes, Peter, how do you justify living in America, a land that belongs to other people? Why don't you move to Europe where you stem from? Serious question. So, listen, listen, friend. You, like, I know this is like a common talking point, but it's important to pay attention to what Peter actually said. If Peter were to say that Jews need to leave the land because they were they were colonizers and they need to leave the land, you your, your question might have some level of consistency. But Peter's not advocating for anybody needing to leave land. He's he's advocating for equal rights across the board. The same thing he advocates in in the United States. So. You're, you're looking for like a hypocrisy that doesn't exist. So I would say, you know, pay attention to what the guest is saying before using that talking point. It's just not, it, it doesn't really work, bro. So. You know, but, but let me say, because I think it's, you know, sometimes it can seem perhaps like, um, you know, Americans can sound self-righteous, but I will say as an American, um, um, you know, I believe in that in Israel Palestine there needs to be a, there needs to be equality and there needs to be historical justice right um that, that uh, and you know that, that people who who were dispossessed of their lands need to have some way of coming back to that land or being compensated the united states has not even begun to do that in a really serious way i i remember once i was in i was in shul in australia um in melbourne 
And before they said the prayer for the state uh, at the, in the minion I was in, and before they said the, the prayer for the state of Australia, they said in the, in, in the minion that they were standing on native Aboriginal land in Australia. Um, we are so far away from being able to do that in the United States. Um, we are so far away from any from meaningful politi public political grappling with what historical justice would mean for Native Americans. Um, uh, and then again, this is, I, you know, in both, I'm not suggesting that Palestinians are the only people who are indigenous to Israel-Palestine. I think Jews and Palestinians, and first of all, I think it's in some ways tragic that we see those as mutually exclusive categories since they were not always mutually exclusive categories. In fact, in the Palestinian national movement, they weren't not considered mutually exclusive categories in the beginning of the 20th century. I think both Jews and Palestinians are indigenous in different ways, but if your point is that as Americans, uh, we uh, are not exactly offering a model of historical justice and true and full and quality, you are absolutely right. We are even compared to other settler colonial societies like Australia and Canada, we are nowhere. Um, uh, the conversation has not has barely even begun. Thanks. So I, I hope that answers your, your question, uh, Sabatonis. My yeah. Um, so we're going to wrap it up, I guess, final thoughts, um, you know, Yehuda, go ahead. F final I'm surprised thoughts. how much you agree with Peter. <laughs> Same. I, I was expecting a lot. More I really was expecting a lot more disagreement coming into this. And, um, uh, and I really like, you know, like I said at the beginning, I really do respect, uh, you know, Peter's intellectual honesty, uh, even what he just said about the United States or total Island, however you want to define it. Um, you know, that uh, there needs to be a conversation about decolonization in a serious way. They're not only for the, the natives who are there before the settlers arrived, but also, of course, for the Africans who are kidnapped and brought over by boats. And, but, uh, like, I'm, I, it's actually shocking to me how much we agree. So, I, I mean, at least in terms of values, I don't know if we agree with everything. Yeah, look, I'm sure there would be points of disagreement as we got into, you know, uh, but I think that I would just say, you know, to me, um, uh, I, I, where I, where I, where I profoundly agree uh, with you uh, is that um, I, I do believe that the, you know, and I think of you as in the tradition of someone like Rabbi Menachem Froman, that it is, it is people who, uh, that, that it is in the journey, um, uh, the journey of, of moral discovery uh, of of the of 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 people around you that 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 um that the greatest change is possible and and i um and i i think that um that if you know if 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 settlers in the west bank can be a, the vanguard of genuinely you know coming to to see and listen uh uh to palestinians around them and then recognize then from that gut level of the recognition of common humanity be willing to 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 envision a political environment uh where for full, for where there's full equality um and create i think what would ultimately what would have to be a jewish and palestinian movement for full equality and historical justice um that speaks in an authentically jewish language um i think it could be something that could um uh that could rouse people you know in the united states uh because i think that um american jews Many American Jews, as you know, want to feel um, want to want to feel in solidarity with Israeli Jews, 
and without feeling like we have to betray our moral faculties with our basic conscience, which is that Palestinian life is precious, Palestinian humanity. And I think if people in Israel can can do that, uh, you know, another place that I feel like maybe could do that is the, is, is Hadash um, uh, and a joint list, which is expanded to include Jewish voices. Um, then I think that could be a rallying cry for the whole world, for Jews around the world, and could be in a funny way for me, again, as a cultural Zionist, someone who wants Israel to provide something that then radiates out throughout the di- diaspora, that would for me be what cultural Zionism would look like in practice. Like really an oligoid, an actual light unto nations, mamash. Right. right. Thank so you the, the I really have is with that S word. You know, I, I don't think that we need to we need to call Jews living here settlers. I think it's a very derogatory term and uh, negation of our identity. And I, I think the problem is, unfortunately, a lot of us are living like settlers and we're living according to settler colonial structures. So uh, for me, I think a big part of this work is trying to find ways for Jews to be able to really live in what we consider to be the cradle of Jewish civilization in a way that's not living as settlers, not being settlers. And I think that's uh, important to unpack. Right. And I, I think, look, and I, th- I think when, you know, when I use the word, I mean, it, it, to me, it, it reflects nothing derogatory about individual human beings. It's a statement about the legal reality that, that exists. And that legal reality exists inside the green line in a different kind of way as well. But I think that, to me, you know, I think that the, the, it seems to me the way of overcoming that stigma is, in, is precisely to, to overcome the legal reality that, that creates inequality. Um, that once right. there is actual equality, then there's no need to call anyone a settler, right? Everyone is, everyone is, is, everyone is, an, equal, is an equal person living on the land that they, that they love. I would even put it this way. I would say Israel's military occupation of the West Bank actually undermines our real connection to Judean Samaria. That, uh, you know, we're not the Americans in Afghanistan. The problem is we sometimes behave like we are due to our identity crisis and a whole bunch of other issues we need to really deal with. Uh, I would say, I, and I agree with you, that I think the, the Jews living in the West Bank, um, if we were able, and it's a big if, but it's you know, part of my work, so I'll throw it out there. If we were able to unite with the Palestinians in a very real way, we would become the most powerful political force between the river and the sea. And I think that we're able to do it in a way that a lot of Jews on the other side of the Green Line aren't, largely because our Jewish identity m- might be a little bit different than the like mainstream Zionist identity. And uh, we're able to maybe make certain compromises other people can't make, whereas there are compromises other people might be willing to make that we're not willing to make. But I think that ultimately the contradictions between much of the Zionist narrative and Palestinians are much greater and much more antagonistic than the contradictions between the Jews living Jewish history in Judea and Samaria and our Palestinian neighbors. I hope you prove I hope you prove that right in practice. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you create that. I hope you show the world that. I think it'll be a that would be a beautiful thing. Great. Um, Peter. Right, next time this. you're here, come visit. I I'd love to. My pleasure. I'd, I'd love to do something similar again in, in the near future. Um, again, if you want to get in touch with either of our guests, you have their contact information in the description. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation on Discord. Jesse, if you could toss that that link in the Discord. Um, we have like a voice. We have a lounge. You, you do a voice channel there. So all the community can now engage. Uh, Peter won't be there, but Yehuda, you're going you're gonna to join? Yeah? Me? Yehuda, you could join the after party? For a few minutes, I could do a few minutes. Okay, Yehuda will be. And Peter, I hope we bring you to the Discord. Um, I'd like that very much. With that, friends, um, until next time, signing out. Thanks. Take care.